If you have your Bibles, go ahead and begin flipping over to Genesis 32, the passage that we just read. So I am here uh, with my wife, Savannah, and we have two little children. We have a two-year-old boy named Owen and a four-year-old uh, little girl named Nora May, who was very excited that there was another Nora here. Um, so uh, whenever we were meeting before the service began, uh, I heard that there is a special part of the service afterwards where everyone runs laps, or maybe the kids run laps. That's my kids' favorite part of the whole service. Afterwards, when they get free reign, so they're really excited about it. Uh, so as we come to our text uh, this morning in Genesis 32, it was C.S. Lewis who said this in his book, The Four Loves. Friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. We're going to be looking at the posture of discipleship this morning. Maybe a posture you haven't thought very much about. It's the posture of weakness. And my prayer is that by the time uh, of God's word is over this morning, you might be able to say in your heart, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. If I were to ask you to describe for me uh, how you think the Bible talks about our relationship with God, maybe what kind of words it uses to describe it, you might say something like, oh, it talks about our relationship with God like walking with the Lord. We use that word a lot, you know, my walk with the Lord. Or maybe you would be thinking about Hebrews 12, running the race. Perhaps you're thinking about Ephesians 6, standing firm in the faith. But one of the words we might not think about is limping, weakness, clinging. And that's actually what this passage shows us this morning in Genesis chapter 2, that the postures of discipleship, the posture of weakness looks like limping, it looks like clinging, and it looks like wrestling. Not necessarily words we would use often to describe a healthy relationship with the Lord. But as we come into the text, I think it would be helpful for a little bit of context for you. This story with Jacob uh, really loses its punch if we don't kind of back up and remember a little bit about his life. So in this passage, as we're going to go through, we're finding Jacob in a position where he is going to be trembling with fear. And he's afraid because he is headed home for the first time in some 20 years. And he's doing so at God's command. God told him after his many years with his uncle Laban, it's time for you to go home. But in going home, that meant one very important thing. He was going to have to confront his brother Esau and seek reconciliation. Now, Jacob's whole life had been one of heel-grabbing grasping to get ahead. Even from the womb, as he was coming out, he's grabbing his brother's heel. Not only was he grabbing his heel at birth, but he 
steals the birthright from his brother. He tricks him to get ahead. He deceives his father to steal the family blessing. He was a supplanter and a heel grabber from the very get-go. Not only this, but after he leaves home in fear of his life, he takes multiple wives. And then he shows favoritism to his wives. And not only that, but he ends up showing favoritism to his children. I don't think we would point to Jacob as a prime example of a great follower of Jesus. Yet, when God introduces himself, so often he introduces himself to people this way. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of of Jacob. In fact, God identifies his people by Jacob's new name that he will give him, Israel. So every time the Philistines talk about Israel or we hear the word Israel, God is reminding us that he is not afraid of relationships with messy, weak people. And so, we find ourselves in this story where Jacob has left town because he was afraid that his brother was going to kill him. In fact, the last thing his brother has ever said before Jacob leaves and runs to his uncle Laban's house is this, I'm going to kill him. So you can imagine, as God says, all right, it's time for you to go back home, to the home where you stole your brother's birthright and you stole his blessing. The last time he spoke was, I'm going to kill him. Jacob finds himself trembling in fear. And not only this, but as he has been a schemer and a deceiver his whole life, he hasn't left those schemes behind necessarily. As he approaches his home, he's grown quite wealthy at his uncle Laban's. And as he comes near, he says, I'm going to divide up the party. He had his wives, his servants, all his animals. He had all his wealth traveling home with him. All his people are going back, his 11 children. He splits them up into two parties. And he tells the servants, all right, I want you to go on ahead in three or four waves. And each time I want you to go, the first wave, I want you to go and meet Esau and say, I have a great gift from your brother Jacob. Give him some sheep. And then the next group goes and says, okay, I have yet more for you. I have cattle. He's trying to bribe his brother into accepting him back. He's trying to sweeten the deal so that by the time he comes face to face with Esau, maybe he won't try and kill him. And so he sends these parties up ahead and he hears this back. The servants come back to him and they report, we've met with Esau. You know, Jacob has to be hanging on the edge of his seat at this point. What did he say? Esau said, stay right there. I'm coming to meet you, and I'm coming with 400 men. Now, 400 men is conveniently the size of a small army garrison. 
So here's what he's hearing. You stay right there. I'm coming. By the way, I'm bringing an army with him. Oh, no. Jacob has to be really trembling in fear here. And so at the point of our text, he sends his wife, his wives, and his children across the ford of the Jabbok, across the stream, and he's spending the night alone on the other side of the water. So he's spending the night here, maybe to gather his thoughts. Maybe he's sending the last wave of people ahead of him. You can almost feel the cowardice as he's the very last one. Even his wife's and children are ahead of him. And so the text says in verse 32, The same night he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. He's alone, and he's in the dark. He's afraid for his life. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Imagine that you're Jacob. You're fearful. You're worried. You're pacing about in the dark. And all of a sudden, out of the shadows, a man appears. And as soon as he comes into view in the dark of the desert, he grabs you and throws you to the ground. He's got to be thinking, it's Esau. He's come to settle the score. Or maybe it's not Esau. Maybe it's a bandit in the desert just trying to kill him and steal all that he's got. Or perhaps Esau has sent an assassin to finish the job once and for all. He's in the dark and this man comes and immediately begins to wrestle with him. Now, who is this man? As the text unfolds, we will begin to see that this is actually no mere man at all, but this is God whom he is wrestling with. Fancy theologians call this a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of God in physical form. I think we might even could make an argument that he is in fact wrestling with Christ himself. So here he is in the dark. This man who is, in fact, God shows up to wrestle him. And they wrestle until the breaking of day. Now, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite commentators, his name is Matthew Henry. Uh, his stuff is so good. But Matthew Henry approaches these verses, and I think he kind of gets it a little bit wrong. He says, look at this great example of wrestling with God in prayer. How Jacob is wrestling with God and he doesn't want to be let go until he has a blessing. But I think Matthew Henry actually gets it flipped around. Jacob doesn't go out looking for God. God comes looking for Jacob to wrestle him down. And so here's God showing up in the dark in one of his most fearful moments, and he comes not to give him a pat on the back, but to wrestle with him. And this is the first posture of weakness. It is wrestling. Wrestling. God, as one man put it, has come to wrestle with Jacob to bring him to the point of physical and spiritual submission. 
as you follow Christ, would you describe often what you experience more like a wrestling match? Maybe we should ask this question. Has God ever come to wrestle with you? Probably most of your life. You see, sin, like Jacob, clings as hard as it can. And at times, we need God to do something. We need God to come to us and wrestle sin and selfishness and pride out of our tight, clenched fingers. We need God as weak people to come and to wrestle with us and to steal sin out of our fingers. And I want you to see something. As Jacob is wrestling with God, in verse 24, it says that he wrestled with him until the breaking of day. High school wrestling matches, I'm not sure if you've been to one in a while, they last a whole six minutes. A high school wrestling match, these, these young men prepare and they train and they fight and they wrestle and, and they get in the ring for two three-minute rounds. And that's because two three-minute rounds of scrapping as hard as you can will leave them totally depleted and totally exhausted. And here's Jacob wrestling with God, not six minutes, but all night long. Is that you? Is that how your life feels? I think so often that's what we feel like. God, if I, if I finish one round and I'm totally out of gas, here you come with something else. And now the kids are sleeping through the night, but now they're throwing tantrums. And I wrestle down the tantrums. And now I'm wrestling potty training. And I've got potty training down, and all of a sudden, here comes sassy attitudes out of no... I mean, I'm wrestling one match after the other all night long. Is that what your life feels like? I think that's what, what discipleship with Jesus feels like so often. And like our friend C.S. Lewis told us, wait a minute, you too? It's not, it's not just me. And maybe I could give you this encouragement before we move on. In a wrestling match with a high school student, they've got these three-minute rounds, and they know that they can give it their all because it won't last forever. Because they've got three minutes to push and to fight as hard as they can. And if you're wrestling, if you're scrapping and if you're fighting, guess what? It means you're still alive and God is still at work. So fight and wrestle because there will be a time when the bell rings and you will be able to lay down your armor at the feet of the cross and say, I'm done, bring me home. So do not give up, fight and wrestle because there is a point when you will fight and wrestle no more. And so while you are alive, 
Give it your best go. Fight until the bell rings and the Lord takes you home. It was J.I. Packer, in the last book that he ever wrote, as he approached 90 years old, as he wanted to impart the church with one last book, and he wrote a book about this big, about 75 pages, called Weakness is the Way. Weakness is the way. How do we make it home to Christ? By weakness and wrestling the way there. And so here is Jacob wrestling until the breaking of day. And it says, when the man saw in verse 25 that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. As he wrestled with him, then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Here we see the second posture of weakness, not just wrestling, but also clinging. Here is Jacob clinging to God, holding on as tight as he can. And there's a shift that happens. It's subtle. Jacob is in the dark and a man shows up to wrestle and he begins to fight and he begins to realize there's something going on here. This is no mere man because as this man that Jacob is wrestling begins to lose, he reaches out and he touches Jacob's hip. And with the touch of his hand, he blows it out of socket. And then Jacob says, wait a minute. I think I need to hang on tight. I think I need to grab hold of this man who looks like he is God. And I need to grab on and cling to him. But we can't, we can't pass by something very important in this text. Jacob is wrestling with God. And did you catch it? It says that when the man who was God saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Jacob is wrestling with God and God is losing. Now, I may not be the oldest saint here, but when someone says to me, God is losing... I kind of scratch my head and I say, well, you know, I know a little bit about God. And, and what I know about God is that he doesn't lose. He's God. And so here's Jacob wrestling with God. And the text says, Jacob is winning. What's going on here? Jacob honestly doesn't stand a chance. And somehow he's winning. You know how I know Jacob doesn't stand a chance? It's because God poked his side and his hip blew out of socket. So to maybe set the picture of what this is like with Jacob wrestling with God. I had a friend who got married a few years back. And for his bachelor weekend, you know, we don't have bachelor parties anymore. We have bachelor weekends and bachelorette trips so for his bachelor weekend, we took a trip to the beach. And we did what 
all grown men love to do when they go to the beach. We drew a ring in the sand and started to have a wrestling match to see who could throw the other one out of the ring. And I don't know if it comes as a surprise to you, but I was not the biggest one there. <laughs> My cousin was there. His name is Casey. And uh, Casey played college football as a fullback. Casey's a stout dude. And so, like any, like any young scrappy fella does, I hopped in the ring with Casey, ready to wrestle on this beach. He was kind. He allowed me at least two seconds before he threw me out. I didn't stand a chance. Casey, the college football fullback, and me. All I could do is pray he didn't throw me too hard. Here's Jacob wrestling with the sovereign God of the universe who holds all things together by his own power. If God took his power off of Jacob, the cells that hold Jacob's body together would fly apart to smithereens. And God is losing. What's going on? This is one of the most mysterious, I think, appearances of God in all of Scripture, where he appears and he wrestles with man and he loses. I read a book called Limping with God by a man named Chad Bird, and he pointed to a similarity in Philippians chapter 2. I want to read this to you as he compares it. Though he was God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a human wrestler, manifesting himself in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by refusing to win the fight, even the fight with Jacob. You see, through the keyhole of Jacob, we are peering into the room of the crucifixion of Christ. It is none other than the descendants of Jacob himself who would, generations later, pin the God-man again. But when he came again in the flesh of Christ, they wouldn't pin him in the dirt in the desert in a wrestling match. No, they would pin him to the cross as he came once again to fight the fight with sin and darkness and death. And once again, when he came in the flesh, it appears as if he loses. Once again, he came who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, this time not in a wrestling match with Jacob, but by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, the one who Jacob pinned to the ground would one day be pinned up on the bloody cross. 
And Jacob has been clinging and grasping to get ahead his whole life. But now, perhaps for the first time in his life, we see him clinging to the only one that matters, the Son of God. We don't cling to our money because it can disappear in an instant. We don't cling to our health because with one doctor's visit, it can all be taken away. We don't trust in our ability because with one mistake, it can all crumble right underneath our feet. We don't cling to this world because it's passing away and we don't cling to our goodness because it's as filthy as rags. We cling to Christ. We cling to him whose death brings us life, whose punishment earns for us paradise, who drinks the darkness of God's wrath so that we could receive the joy of forgiveness of sins, whose defeat is our victory and whose loss is our gain. You see, as Jacob prevails against God, we see straight to the cross where God again appears to lose. But it is in his losing that he wins. I will not let you go, Jacob says, and he clings to Christ. We see three postures of weakness here. We see wrestling. Is that your life? A wrestling match with God, a wrestling match to try and stay afloat. Is that you clinging to Christ, knowing that I'm so weak, I have nothing that I can do other than to grab and hold on and say, God, you're everything. Christ, you're all that I need. You're the only thing that will bring me forgiveness and hope and goodness in life. You're everything. Are you clinging? Are you wrestling? And the third posture of weakness is this, limping limping. You see, as Jacob wrestled with God and the morning begins to dawn, he says in verse 27, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob said to him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? Something God says very often. And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Jacob met with God in this dark desert night. He wrestled with him. He clung to him until God blessed him. But he did not leave that meeting with God without a scar. His lasting scar was his limp, where God had touched him and blown it out of socket. Our scars are like permanent stories embedded in our bodies. 
Even if I try to forget a painful experience, a scar is a lasting reminder. Jacob did not leave his wrestling match with God without a scar. His limp marked his encounter with God. Now why would God leave him and us oftentimes with scars? Why would Jacob limp every time he takes a step, maybe for the rest of his life? It's because we are so forgetful that the limp acted as a reminder. And in this way, limps are God's grace to his forgetful people. So that with every twinge of pain, Jacob is reminded, I met with God and he delivered me. And he wakes up on one of those cool fall mornings and his hip is hurting and he steps out of bed and he, oh, he twinges. It's a reminder that he met with God and that God worked in him and that God delivered him in a moment where he could have thrown him into the ring of outer darkness. He met with God face to face and he was delivered. We all have our own limps. Jacob had his, you have yours, I have mine. But our limps, they may be physical, it may be a dead-end job. It may be kids who try your patience day in and day out. It may be sleeplessness, anxiety, family tension, past pain, or ongoing struggles with sin. Oftentimes, it's all of those all at once. But as upside down as it sounds, limps are meant to be life-giving. We don't think about it that way often. Jacob probably isn't thinking often as he's wincing in pain with his limping hip. Oh, this is so life-giving to me. He's probably thinking, Lord, please take it away. I'm tired of this. But the limp is meant to be life-giving. It is meant to remind us of the life-giver. And so, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The pain of a limp is real. And it, this is not to say that it doesn't matter and it doesn't hurt. But a limp is not meant to every day eternally drag us down into sadness and sorrow about how hard our life is. That's not the purpose of a limp. The purpose of a limp is to constantly remind us day after day, hour after hour, step after step, that God is gracious, that God is with us, that God, not me, is my source of strength. I am reminded with every walk of my limp, with every moment of weakness, with every ounce of struggle and suffering, I am reminded that I am weak. But if you stop right there, your story is incomplete. If you wake up on the hard days and you say, this is hard and I'm so weak. 
And that's where you stop. You're missing the most important part of the story. I am weak, but he is strong. That's the most, complete the story in your life. As you face limps and moments of weakness, complete the story. Don't just say, these kids are hard. Say, these kids are hard and God is with me. Don't just say, my sin is great. Say, my sin is great, but Christ is greater. Don't just say, I've been hurt by people before. Say, I've been hurt by people before, but God will walk with me. Finish the story. Just so that we know I'm not pulling all this out of an Old Testament text and making a mountain out of a molehill. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There was a, a sermon. It was actually a commencement address by John Piper on 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in that, he said something that has stuck with me ever since. He said this, God uses Satan to defeat Satan. He uses the works of darkness to defeat Satan himself. That's how sovereign our God is. And so look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited, it's a fancy word for pride. That's Satan's most common tactic. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Maybe we could say a limp. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So here he's using the work of Satan to crush Satan's own work. Three times I pleaded that the Lord would leave this from me, that he would take this from me, that my limp might go away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, and perhaps we could say even limps. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And lest we think that our personal weakness and sufferings and limps are unfair, let us fix our eyes on Jesus whose body to this very day bears the scars of God's wrath for us, who sings the song that his defeat was his delight, that in grace we can shout with Jacob, I have seen God face to face, and yet because of the nail-scarred hands, my eternal life has been delivered. My brothers and my sisters, as disciples of Jesus, weakness is the way. It is the way to strength in Christ.
So I implore you this morning, cling to Christ in repentance and faith. Cling to him who turns sinners into saints, who brings dead men to life, who makes the blind to see, who turns his enemies into his friends, and who will carry us, limping as we go, all the way home. Let's pray. Father, we are your weak people. And in your grace, you wrestle with us. In your grace, you allow us to cling to you. Father, in your grace, you will carry us all the way home. Lord, I pray that these truths would bury themselves in our heart, that we would see Christ and that we would cling to him. Lord, we ask this in his name.